Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. It's the Late Show Poncho with Stephen Colbert. Hey, welcome back, everybody. My guest tonight is a husband, father, military veteran, and activist. He has three dogs, two kids, and lives in Southern California. He is also the Duke of Sussex. Please welcome to The Late Show, Prince Harry. There you go. Oh, yes, yes. This the spare? That's the spare. That's the spare. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thank you for bringing in the crowd. Thank you so much for being here. And you're absolutely right, you might have missed it, but, but Harry said, Is this the chair and the spare over there? <laughs> well done, well played, well played, sir. Now, uh, uh, it's lovely to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on to talk about your new book. Um, what should I call you? You can call me whatever you want at this point. <laughs> I'm, is it, is it I'm Harry? stuck here until we stop talking. So. <laughs> well, in the book, I find you've got a lot of different names. Your, your birth name is Henry. Your father and your brother often call you Harold. Some people call you H. Dear friends called you Has. What is Has? Is that short for hazardous? You what is... You... <laughs> what is it's ha- not. My wife calls me Has, so you can't call me Has. Has, okay, okay. Harry, is Harry okay? Yeah, Harry, Has, Baz, Baza, Spike, Bazaruni. It's all there. <laughs> Bazaruni. <laughs> prince Bazaruni. No, the prince doesn't come before that. Oh, okay. No. It's its own title in it's and of its itself. It's like um, a code word. Well, you've written this very intimate uh, memoir, which, which I've read, and it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's, a very, it's a very good read by itself. Uh, it's available today. A lot of uh, sensational uh, leaks in the days coming up to this. Um, I know that you are you yourself are a very private person for being a public figure. You're revealing a lot of things in here. It must be on a certain level kind of nerve-wracking to be out there to publicly and physically represent the book. Mm-hmm. Would you like a cocktail before we begin? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> I hear you like... Tequila. Yeah, let's go Does he ever make you guys a there drink or not? There you go. No, it is. Sure, I'm not sure. Everyone sh- wants a drink. Everybody wants a drink. Okay. Exactly. They're already on your side, man. You don't have to get them drunk. <laughs> All right. Are you glad now to be out here so people can see this book after all these leaks? 
so they can see the context of these remarks. Yes, context is everything, as we know. Um, look, writing this book has been a, a cathartic experience for me. Um, hard times and happy times, uh, bringing up old memories that I didn't think I had. Um, but yes, context is everything, and unfortunately, due to those leaks, uh, the British press, <laughs> which are central to so much of my story in my 38 years up until this point, and after spending two years focused on context, what I'm going to share, how I'm going to share it, and being able to piece it all together, they intentionally chose to strip away all the context and take out individual segments of my life, uh, my story, and every experience that I've had and turn it into a salacious headline. Well, um, I mean, there are is, problems with it. Which is somewhat typical. Right, especially if you read this book, you find out how typical that is. Yes. Now, there's a lot of faults in the American press, and, and, and people from all different stripes can see that in the American press, but the British press is, is, is almost odd to me. It's sort of bizarre how vicious they can be. Um, you detail a lifetime of dishonorable behavior like the kind you're describing, um, and not only from the press, but from palace sources. Yeah. In palace insiders who would not only not defend you but also plant stories that were derogatory mm -hmm. uh, toward you and placed you and your loved ones under attack. And judging the last few days, that hasn't changed. No, nothing's changed. Okay. Do you, do you think that right now there is an active uh, campaign by uh, the rest of your family, by the royal house, as it were, to undermine this book? And, and you, yeah, as you support it? Of course, and, and mainly by the British press, because they but are... But aided and abetted by yeah, the palace. again, of course. But there's, there's... This is the other side of the story, right? After 38 years. They've told their side of the story. This is the other side of the story. And there's a lot in here that, you know, perhaps makes people feel uncomfortable and scared. I would say that... If, I think there's, there's some veterans in the house tonight. <laughs> They're there. <laughs> um, I think one of the most... Uh, look, I'm not going to lie, the last few days have been hurtful and challenging, uh, not being able to do anything about those uh, leaks that you refer to. But perhaps the... Or no, not perhaps, without doubt, the most dangerous lie that they have told is that I somehow boasted about the number of people that I killed in Afghanistan. I've, I've read that section of the book, and I'm, without reading the entire thing right here... It, it is, it, to me, it's, it's a very thoughtful description of what that knowledge is like to have and what the experience is to know that you have done this in order to protect what you believe is good in the world mm -hmm. from those who would wish to destroy it. There's, there's nothing boastful about it. Um, and not but, only but that... Way, but, but also, I would say that if I heard anybody else, if I heard anyone boasting about that kind, kind of thing... I would be angry, but, but it's a lie. And hopefully, now that the book is out, people will be able to see the context. And it is. It's, it's, really, it's really troubling and very disturbing that they can get away with it. And also because they had the context. It wasn't, like a, it wasn't like, here's just one line. They had the whole section. They ripped it away and just said, here it is. He's boasting on this. When, as you say, that you've read it, and everybody else will hopefully be able to have a chance to read it. And that's dangerous. And my words are not dangerous, but the spin of my words... Are very dangerous. Dangerous because it makes you a increased target. Those and those, yeah. and those that, around you that you love. And that is a choice they've made. Um, and another odd thing about it is that this is nothing new. Here's an article from I believe this is from Reuters from ten years ago, describing 
that you had killed Afghan insurgents, the Taliban, in sorties. So this isn't new information. This has been known for a long time. Almost 10 years to the day. My face was splattered all over the front pages um, because someone asked me a question while I was still in Afghanistan um, if I had killed anybody from an attack helicopter. Um, and I said yes. And I think the most important thing here is not only the context, but the reason as to why I decided to share this in my book. Because, again, to the vets here and to the civilians here, which may seem may feel as though this is slightly <laughs> a weird conversation to have, um, especially on this show of all shows, but I made a choice to share it because having spent nearly two decades working with veterans all around the world, I think the most important thing is to be honest and be able to give space to others to be able to share their experiences without any shame. And my whole goal and my attempt with sharing that detail is to reduce the number of suicides. You talk. You, 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 you talk in the book. Here we go. There you go. You talk in the book about those years in the military as having saved you. Mm-hmm. And as you said, you still continue to, to work with veterans, wounded veterans, the Invictus Games. And uh, do you think the UK press is using this specifically to hurt you in an area that is most meaningful to you? Without question. Um, it's not just an area that they know is the most meaningful, but it is what has defined my life. I spent ten, ten years in the Army. I only joined for th- uh, originally for three um, but I couldn't resist uh, staying. They kept dangling the carrot of different jobs uh, for me mm-hmm. for many years. Mm-hmm. But I found a refuge there. Um, and as I talk about in the book, um, I found my purpose. Um, a purpose greater than myself and to be amongst comrades wearing the same uniform, being treated, uh, no longer being treated differently for the first time in my life and being able to hide away from the, from the media focus. For me, that was, that was an amazing place to be in an amazing community. And I still am part of that community. So they will do everything they can to try and uh, disrupt that. As much um, as you point out the, the mendacity and the corruption of the, the British press, yeah. how do you feel about the audience who wants those photos, who wants those stories? I mean, I'm, I'm struck by the people who are along the streets mm-hmm. uh, crying as your mother's carriage uh, goes by, as uh, the, the, the case on holding her, her yeah. coffin as you're a boy... And them, and them crying, calling out, and offering their sympathy. Well, there wouldn't be those photos if the public didn't go buy those magazines. Do you have a conflicted feeling about how the audience for that kind of salacious work that gets sold uh, aid and abets uh, it? Yeah, yeah. I, think, um, I think so many of us um, feed into it. A lot of us feed into it without realizing it. Um, we click on photographs without really considering how that photograph was taken. Uh, and the story behind that photograph, especially with someone's kids. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's... Look, the way that I look at it now, and again, I talk about it in the book, I was, obs- I was obsessed. I was specifically looking for stories about my wife so that I could educate myself on the opinions that were happening and things that were being said so that I could try to fix it, right? Um, but I think, you know, now for me, I've weaned myself off that because I was slightly addicted to it. And now I have a, a digital diet. And as much as I worry about what I put in my mouth, I worry about what I, what I put through my eyes as well. And my life is so much better for it. I'm curious. I'm 
I'm curious, why do you think, and I know this might seem a simple question or there might be a simple answer here, why do you think the world is so fascinated with your family and at this moment in you? Not aside from this book, because there was already a press fascination, a public fascination, even when you and uh, your wife were being private all during uh, COVID out in California. Why do people have an appetite? Well, first of all, to the, are you talking about my family? or Your family. The, uh, my family, okay. Uh... Well, how about your family and your greater family? Well, the greater family, I, I, I don't know. I, I grew up within it. Um, I think there's always been a fascination. I think my mum took it to... The fascination of her took it to a new level. You know, Diana's boys, let's see how this turns out. Um, and I think there was a real sense of... Uh, in some parts, ownership. Some parts, uh, parenthood by the British public, feeling as though they had to parent myself and my brother through our through our teenage years. Mm -hmm. And then he got married, and it was like, great, there's one. Ooh, what's going to happen with the other one? <laughs> I wonder. And then I'm falling out of clubs, I'm taking drugs, I'm drinking heavily, all of that. Again, it's all there. Um, and that was, that was a part... <laughs> <a> slow drink. <laughs> um, but with regard to my family, you, you hit on a really important point, which is we were forced to leave. We left in 2020. We moved... Our, we fled my home country, we moved to California, and for 12 months during lockdown where we said literally nothing, it was relentless. And that was, that was a real eye-opener for me. I never thought that we'd be away from it completely, but I did think that we would get some form of peace, but that's when I realised that actually our mere existence outside of that institutional control was more of a threat. And, you know, there's a similar thing that happened to my mum to my as well. And, look... They always knew that my wife was going to, 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 to leave because of the way that they were abusing her. But I think the most embarrassing thing is that I just decided to leave with her. Do they think the intent was to make her to leave or to break her spirit so she would be easier to control? Because uh, <laughs> mm. <laughs> either one would do, like right? a little bit like group therapy. <laughs> you didn't know, did you? It was a... You were saying to the guy, I got a dinner reservation. What is this? Exactly. Well, um, Harry, let's I, follow both, that feeling. Both. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I, I, I think I think both. Um, I've never I've never I've never seen the level of abuse and harassment that I witnessed over my wife. Other members of the family, they've experienced different forms of that. Um, but to see it happen the way that it happened. Um, I was naive going into it. I didn't realise that the British press would be so bigoted. And even if I had, I wouldn't have accepted or understood that they could get away with it. Mm -hmm. But here we are. And I've now created, or we have created, a fantastic life here in California, which is, by the way, is beautiful, and America is a great place to live. More with Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, after this. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card. 
where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. The title, Spare. How old were you when that name or that description uh, made sense to you in terms of the hierarchy of the family? When did it make sense? I think I... When did you realize that spare meant, like, you're, uh, you know, even comedically perceived as, like, well, he's a safety cushion. (laughs) I heard someone go, oh. You should read the book. (laughs) Whoever that was, thank you. I'll give you a hug later. Um... (laughs) Stop doing it, stop doing it. Um, But, yeah, I think, I don't know, for a purely American audience, I I assume, the air spare is probably something very new, but it is, yeah, it it is literally that. You have the air, and then you have the spare. You have the distraction. Um, And if you're not careful, you can really play into that, like some members of my family have, and and I fell for that trap when I was, you know, my teenage years, looking for my purpose and trying to work out what was going on. Your family motto you say in here is uh, never complain, never explain. Yeah. Okay. But there's also another family motto, which is Dieu et mon droit, you know, God and my right. Mm -hmm. And those are two different things. One is to say, like, oh, don't care, don't explain. But the other is very forceful and say, almost like, pardon my expression, damn it, you cannot come for me because I have the right to this position Mm -hmm. and, and, and the right to my actions Um, Do you see those two in conflict? Does your family really not explain and not complain? No, it it, it literally is that. It's a motto. That's all it is. Um, For well over a decade, probably two decades, um, the the motto itself is a a shield to be able to feed narratives, trading of information, personal information on family members to take one down, to build one up. And through unnamed sources, uh, where there are no fingerprints left behind. So, again, one of the reasons what I wrote this book is I'm, every word in that book is mine. And I realise that... Especially, what, do you, what, do you, what, what do you mean by that? Because the amount of unnamed sources that have fed information to the British tabloids oh. about me and my wife and my family... You have a source true and it's you. and not true. I am the source of that book. And the difference is that instead of hiding behind, you know... Um, unnamed sources. This here, are my, these, these are my words from, from my lips, from my mouth. And I understand, especially for British people, that it can be incredibly jarring to have my name to a lot of these stories. It is also quite bizarre because a lot of these stories in this book have actually been told already. The thing that seems redolent when you read the book and you, and you hear your interviews, it, you, I get the sense that you're being honest when you speak. And being factually honest, as you say, these are all, you're, you're standing behind all of these stories, but also emotionally honest. And one of the things that was sort of emotionally very affecting to me, even as someone who, again, who doesn't follow the royal family that much, I always assumed after the death of your mother, the two of you, you and your brother were lockstep. Yeah. You were these um, solaces for each other who went through this experience together and went through the really the rest of your lives shoulder to shoulder as the only two who could possibly understand what you'd gone through. But that is not the case. No, that's not Here. Are you surprised that people are surprised? Because people are surprised. Are you surprised? Yes. Because that has been the narrative. 
I mean, look, there's, a, there's two parts to this. One is, I think, anyone who suffers from trauma, shock, grief, loss, which we all have and all will, um, that you have got to put on a brave face. And I think, to a large extent, you know, me out there smiling, my brother out there smiling, mm-hmm. us doing working engagements together, it, it looks a certain way, mm-hmm. especially then when you have the British press, the Royal Rota, of which all of the royal family's information goes through that filter before it then goes global. That's like the press pool? Yeah, press pool, yeah. It's uh, ex- uh, exclusive access. Um, um, do you have to say it that way? <laughs> Legally, is it? do you have to say it that way? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I, I signed a disclaimer before. Exactly. Like um, but for... Yeah, so I can understand why people would think that. But I guess more recently, especially in the last six years, it is all the, the, the fracture of the relationship between me and my brother... <laughs> has, has, has very much been pinned on my wife, um, funnily enough. There's a lot of talk about the physical fight that the two of you had, where he pushed you down in the kitchen and, and broke the, the dog bowl when you yeah. fell on it. Um, it says it broke your necklace. Mm-hmm. What necklace was this that he broke? Uh, this one, which is now fixed and now it's got... And what's on there? What do we got there? We got um, my kid's heartbeats, which my wife gave me. Oh, like the cardiogram yep. engraved there, yeah. yeah. And, and what's the central? And then a friend of mine in Botswana made this for me, which has got tiger's eye in the middle. If your mother were still alive, do you ever think about how she might handle this moment? She, I mean, she. We uh, wouldn't have got to this moment. Talk to me about that. Well, we wouldn't have done. I don't know where. I don't know what. There was already there. crisis in your family. There was already divisions. There was already, She was already being hounded. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it's impossible to say where we, where we would be now, where those relationships would be now, but there is no way that the distance between my brother and I would be the same. Do you think of how, like, do you, do you sort of mentally or spiritually ask for help as to, like, what can I do to, to fix this? Any advice she might give you in this moment? Um, I've, I've said quite a lot recently in these uh, in different interviews that I've been doing that I've really felt the presence of my mum, especially in the last couple of years. And I detail in the book, uh, my brother and I uh, talking at her grave and how he felt as though she had been with him for a long period of time and helped set him up with life Mm -hmm. and that he felt she was now moving over to me. And I have felt her more in the last two years than I have in the last 30. Um, The last two years is very interesting because you're 38 and she was 36 when she died. What was that? What is a moment like when someone at a young age loses, loses a parent? For many people, it's a significant moment when you become older than that parent who's looms so large in, in your mind. When you're older than they are, when you've seen more of life than they have, such as it is, what was that moment like for you? Or was it significant at all? Well, she died at 36, and I was 36 when this all kicked off. <laughs> um, as in January of 2020 was when my wife and I basically said, enough, we can't cope, we can't deal with this, we need to carve out something different. Um, So that was an interesting overlap of time. You talk about her death or that moment in your life as uh, being a wall uh, over which you couldn't see. Mm -hmm. Um, Was that, how do you see that wall now, now that you've You've been through self-reflection, some therapy about that. Have you been able to see over it? In some yeah, ways? no, I have, I've, I've definitely been able to see over it. I would say that I haven't necessarily kicked it down, but I've managed to reach to the top and start removing bricks as opposed to poking one through and having a look and poking another one through. The wall has reduced in size. That is partly through writing a book, 
partly through therapy and having uh, her scent, her perfume, and spraying it and being able to unlock memories that I never thought I had. Um, but I, but there, there are memories pre-12-year-old Harry that I will never be able to access. Um, and that, that sucks. That's really sad. But again, I'm, I imagine it is so relatable for so many people because from, as far as I'm concerned with all the work that I've done on myself, but also the stories that I've heard from so many people, not just veterans, that I'm convinced that 99.9% of people on planet Earth are walking around with some form of unresolved grief, trauma, or loss. And with that comes these filters of which is acts as a fog. And every opportunity we have to be able to clean the windscreen, take the filters away, and actually see life as it is and be able to live a truly authentic life, that, to me, has been the freedom that I've been looking, that I didn't even know that I was looking for for most of my life. You say, like, 99% of people have some trauma. To be alive is to suffer in some way. And so often in this book, you say, I wanted to hug this person, usually a member of your family. I wanted to hug this person. I wanted this person to hug me. And it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't think, I don't think ever within your family the way that you're hoping that it will. Why, if all of us suffer, and I assume that your family is no different than ours as human beings... Why don't y'all hug each other? Why can't you just hug each other? Surely they want to be hugged as well on a certain level. Yeah, there's a lot of people around who... By the way, I'm a big hugger now. Um, um, But I I, I did, you know, I was was also the kind of individual who, whenever asked when I was younger, how are you feeling? Are you happy? Are you sad? I'm fine. Fine was the easy get, get out. Fine That's was, what you would say. Fine was the fine. Res- response that you could guarantee that there wasn't going to be a follow-up question. Right, also because as a tra- child of trauma, you don't really want to dip into it. You don't want to dip into it. And you know, I, I certainly wasn't conscious of the reasons as to why I didn't want to dip into it. All I knew was that there was a, uh, a defense mechanism. And no one was helping you do that dipping into it. No, no, God no. I mean, this was back in 1997, right? Therapy wasn't really a, a conversation that was had. Um, not, a, not within my family and not really within British culture at all. I don't know how you guys were doing in 1997, but it wasn't, it wasn't really a regular thing. Um, but, you know, today, in one of today's newspapers, apparently I'm trapped in the cult of psychotherapy. <laughs> <laughs> how is it in the cult? Is it nice? It's, you know, it's, it's warm, it's cosy. Um, Good. Now, just... yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> so, we got... I want to ask you a couple more other questions, if you don't mind, about... And this is... You engage in something that... Um, I, I think we discussed this briefly, that I, I lost several members of my family when I was a little bit younger than you, and I engage in a lot of magical thinking about who they, where they were, and perhaps they weren't dead. And you talk about this all through this book, and it's one of the things that was so resonant to me, mm-hmm. was the belief that, no, my mother is alive. She's out there someplace, yep. and someday she will show up. That's a recurring theme throughout this. What, did you have an image of your mind of where she was and what she was doing all this time? Um, for those years, for, I mean. Yeah, for, for many years, I had dreams. I was convinced that she was still alive. I mean, I was, you know, 12 years old. And did you see her in the... Did you think you saw her places? Only a handful of times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had to believe that she was still alive. I could not face the reality that she was gone. Where did you imagine she was? Hiding. Mm. Taking a break. 
plotting, planning, and then coming to get me and William to get us out of there because it was unbearable for her. Hiding and I think the in whole some world ways. Saw that. I mean, uh, hiding. I'm not going to accuse you and Megan of hiding, but removing yourself from the situation. This fantasy that you had of what your mother did is what you did. You removed yourself from the toxic situation. Yeah. And I'm glad, by the way, I'm glad that it... (laughs) Um, Not before trying to make it work. (laughs) Yes. Believe me, we tried, um, and we're still trying. But I'm glad that that resonated for you, because as we know through, you know, our own mental health journey, there's power in sharing, right? Because then you realise you're not alone, and you realise you weren't crazy thinking that. So I really And that is how that person is still alive. If you share your memories of that person, how you feel that person, that is how that person really... That is not magical thinking. That person becomes no, true, alive. But there's, but there's also that, that grief that so, so many of us... Look, within society at large, we are not exactly encouraged to grieve. And I think that's a real problem. It's seen as a weakness. It's, it's seen as weakness. Um, but I, through this book, have been the most vulnerable I have ever been in my life. Um, and I've never felt stronger. What do you... you you, you talk about the love of community in here, not in so many words, but certainly the, the community of your friends in, uh, what's the, uh, what's the Club H? Is that what it is? Club H, yeah. Club H, um, uh, mm-hmm. below one of the estates, um, uh, in, in, in the army, and you had to leave. This was mo- the cellar of my dad's house. Yes. Just so we're all clear. Yeah, Club H. Exactly. You're all invited. <laughs> <laughs> you, then, you had to, then you had to leave the most intimate I'll, I'll community, with, which is your, your family. Sorry? It must have been hard to leave, if you, for someone who wants community so much, to leave the most intimate community, which, which is your family. Yes, and one of the hardest bits, which I realized pretty quickly, was the moment that I started doing therapy, it's like we started speaking a different language. You and your family, that you had a different emotional vocabulary than they were sharing. We, it, just, it just became very, very different. Yeah, I, they, 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 wouldn't, they couldn't understand me, and I was doing my best to try and encourage them to healing. And everyone has their own journey, and I fully, and I fully respect that. Um, but within that institution, there is a mindset. Um, and there's a lot of people that are hired and brought in that ultimately manage that mindset. And I think it's really, really damaging and dangerous. So, you know, a large reason of why I've written a book is because I want this to stop with me. That makes, it makes no sense for me to be able to expose and uncover all of this practice, these, this toxic relationship between the palace and the press, if I know that someone else in my family is going to be the next target. Because if it's not Megan and I, it's going to be someone else. When you were still in the family, were you aware of specific instances when this was happening with the complicity of the yeah. palace? Yeah, it got to the point where every unnamed source, palace source, palace insider, senior palace source, everybody, everybody was quoted. And then at the bottom, it would say, the palace, uh, palace declined to comment. It's like, right, but the whole article is them commenting. <laughs> and even today, they're doing the same thing. So I don't know what to say at this point, apart from you keep telling on yourselves. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm asking is that, you know, you were inside the system, therefore you know how the system works. Yes, which is also terrifying for, for, for those people. Um, you write a lot about your brother. Uh, you write about him with love. Mm-hmm. Um, you call him Willie. But there is a different Willie that also gave you some pain and trouble. You got frostbite. Frostnip. 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 Frostnip on a delicate part of your anatomy. 
And you write about this in the book. When you went to the North <laughs> now Pole... They're in, now they're interested. Okay. <laughs> Can you explain how it is that the royal standard got frost nip? <laughs> Walk us through it. Take all the time in the world. How long have you... How long... Can I have a drink? Sure. There you go. Yes. <laughs> how long have you been waiting to ask that question? Since I we've read taken... the book yesterday. We've taken... <laughs> We've taken quite a leap from, yes. from grief and trauma to, to my todger. Todger, that's a, that's a very gentle it's, word. It's a gentle? Todger. Sounds like a nice nickname. You know my friends. Here's Willie, here's Todger. Here's John Thomas. Well, hang on a sec. Yeah. But in Do I care for a game of tallywhacker? <laughs> so how did the... My, my todger make it How in? did your todger... I know how it made it into the book. You <laughs> typed it. But how did... How did it get frost-nipped? Why did you not take care of the, the royal jewels? The reason... The... <laughs> it's really hard to have this conversation because there's no-one in this audience that has probably read the book yet, apart from you and me. You, so, you we, go talk to about, we talk about context, right? The context of this is that you're going to the North Pole... Thank you. OK, and things got very cold. At what point did you realize there was a crisis at the South Pole? Um... <laughs> Once I got home. Really? Yeah. All the way home? Yeah. It took it that long to thaw well, out? No, because, look, OK. <laughs> the problem was, first of all, it didn't turn into an icicle, right? Didn't or, snap or, off like a graham or, cracker. No, exactly. You can't say... Okay. It wasn't like that. Never? Yeah. Well... Uh... <laughs> OK, so it's, it seems OK. It's fine now, thank you. Um, so the, the, <laughs> the context was that these amazing veterans were doing a walk to the North Pole. Yes. They had all the training. I had none. And I turned up thinking, how bad can this be? It's um, only the North Pole. It's only, it's only the North Pole. It's only minus 35 degrees. I've got the salopettes. I've got the jacket. I've got the warm stuff. Um, I've got all the things that I need. But what I didn't have was um, what I had when I actually went to the South Pole, which was a cushion. <laughs> which, which, if you... <laughs> which is which is a good... no one in my life when I was a child could ever explain to me that someday the Duke of Sussex was going to say the words <laughs> cushion to me, <laughs> and it would all make sense. This is absolutely surreal. Well, look. First of all, it's great that it makes sense. Yes. Because otherwise, I'd move myself into this chair. Yes. <laughs> So is it so, like down? So, what, what, what are we talking about well, here? Well, there was a lovely lady from uh, uh, Helly Hansen who actually... Is this the beginning of a limerick? <laughs> <laughs> a lovely lady who, who, who made a cushion for me, having been told by the guide from the North Pole, yeah. he's doing this again. Yes. He's going to need some extra protection because the pants that I was wearing... Uh, you guys wear pants, uh, underwear... Trousers. Underwear. Oh, pants or underwear. underwear. Yeah, right, so, OK, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's all I had. So my... Man piece, my Johnson, my Wilson, my Todger, my Willie. Yes. All the things and any other words. Exactly. If you need to know any other words, I think the Austin yes. Powers uh, yes. sequence is a very good. Yes. The uh, Tower uh, of London. Exactly. <laughs> That's new. Big Ben. <laughs> um, yes. That the the, the 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 piece was against one layer of clothing or two very thin layers of clothing. And the cold to the mi now. minus thirty-five. And when you're walking, you're you're hot. And you're yeah. trying not to sweat because the sweat freezes. Yeah. 
and once it's numb, you don't know the pain. It's, it's, it's just right. numb. So when do you find out? Like, what, when does it occur oh, to you that something not weeks, not as all weeks, right. after, weeks after I got back? Weeks after, and yeah. uh, why weeks? I don't understand. <laughs> I mean, do you not take inventory on a regular basis? <laughs> I'll get to that later. Next week. Next no, week. No, you no, are a busy man. <laughs> nothing visible. Oh, really? Nothing obvious. Okay. It was a it was a slow deteriorating uh, situation. That's unlike, the part. That's the part. Unlike, that's unlike, the part we're editing well, out of this very, interview. Very, Boy, right there. <laughs> All right. Very unlike similar what? to this experience. Unlike, yeah, yeah, yes. Unlike what? Unlike what? That's right. You, you carry on. <laughs> you're doing great. You're doing great. No, you're doing great. <laughs> how's how's your penis? Doing great. <laughs> Fantastic. She- A little antifreeze. A little There's antifreeze. some people here who are, sh- who are horrified. Most of them are amused. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. No, this is a difficult transition. You're wearing masks, so I can't really tell whether you're laughing or not. I want to show this lovely photo right here. There's, there's so much in this book that is actually very heartwarming. The, the human connection that you have with, with your family and the times when they've been there to support you. Here's a beautiful photo of yourself and Queen Elizabeth II. And the world mourned her passing last September. You didn't just lose your sovereign, you lose your grandmother. And there, there, there are many really lovely interactions between you and your grandmother. Um, what will you remember most about her? Her sharp wit. Her sharp wit? Yeah, her sense of humor, her ability to uh, respond to anybody with... A completely straight face, but totally joking. Wow. Just the, the ultimate British dry wit. Yeah. Um, but she was just, she was just, she was. She was incredibly humorous. But as I, again, as I say in the book, I'm, I'm, I am now and I was then genuinely happy for her because she finished life. Um, she had an amazing life. She had an amazing career. Um, and she was buried with her husband. And bearing in mind the suffering, global suffering that, everybody's experienced over the last three years, there was less suffering for both of my grandparents, and I'm really, really grateful for that. Here's another lovely family photo. Your daughter, Lilibet, your son, Archie, and, of course, your wife, Megan, your daughter, Lilibet, is named in her honor. Having children helps us remember those that we've lost. Um, Do you see your mother or your grandparents in any of your children? Uh, definitely my mum. The ginger gene is a strong one. Look at that. Both of them. The Spencer gene is very, very strong. I actually really genuinely thought at the beginning of my relationship that should this go the distance uh, and then we have kids, that there's no way the ginger gene will stand up to my wife's genes, but I was wrong. What do you guys do at home? Like, what's what's fun? Do you guys, do you guys, like, do you guys binge? Binge. You guys binge shows? Binge? Yeah. The binge. The binge binge, the binge TV shows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, You've watched The Crown, right? You've got to have watched some of The Crown, right? <laughs> People love it. That. Yes, I have actually watched The Crown. Oh, yeah. Well, the it's, recent it's, it's, stuff or, or the, the, the older stuff? Uh, the older stuff and the more recent stuff. Yeah. Um, Do you fact check it while you watch it? Yeah. <laughs> um, mm. Yes, I do, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which, by the way, by the way, <laughs> another reason why it's so important that history has it right. 
Well, Harry, thank you so much for being here. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for sharing this. Spare is available today. It's Prince Harry, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. Just one more thing. If you want to see more of me, come to The Late Show YouTube channel for more clips and exclusives. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Late Show Pod Show listeners can get 20% off on all Late Show with Stephen Colbert merchandise on ParamountShop.com. That's 20% off at checkout on all Late Show shirts, mugs, accessories, and more with code TLS20 at ParamountShop.com.